morning, Sovereign Grace. So great to see many of you here on a rainy day. Well, we will be in the Word this morning, as always, back in Genesis, continuing through this story with Jacob in Genesis 32. So go ahead and begin to turn there. Decided to take this amazing chapter and break it up into two weeks. So we will only cover verses 1 through 21 this morning. And trust me, that is plenty. Great, there's great things here, and we'll get to Jacob wrestling with the Lord next week. So Genesis 32. Genesis 32, verses 1 through 21. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, before we read this, this is the word of our living God. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus shall you say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may, may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mother's, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 25 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? And you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. 
they are present, sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Amen. The sum of the word of the Lord is truth, and every one of his righteous rules endures forever. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God who so graciously draws near to us in our time of need. Lord, we are thankful for the privilege of drawing near to you now and today in corporate worship. And Lord, we are eager to hear from you in your word this morning. So Lord, as we gather around your word together, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your word and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from worthless things so that we might fix them on your life-giving word, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the eternal word of God, the one who took on flesh to save us. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When I was in college, I had a small, short crisis of faith in one of my Bible classes of all places at Biola University. And it all really started with an in-depth study of Romans chapter seven. You see, I've always believed that Romans seven was actually a picture of the believer's struggle with the flesh. It's a picture of how Paul is struggling with his own sinfulness. I mean, when you heard the passage read earlier by Jason, when you hear those words, don't you, can't you relate to that? I mean, listen to this. This is what Paul says. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I can relate to that. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I hear that, and there are times when I read that and think, Paul is in my mind, <laughs> because I can relate to that. There are days where I, I throw up my hands in frustration and think, Lord, I am so ready to be done with sin, so ready to be done with this struggle. Lord, please save me from me and all the temptations in this world. Come, Lord Jesus. And this passage always brought me a great amount of encouragement because I look at this and say, yes, even the Apostle Paul struggles like me. Even he has to fight for faith. It was always a blessing to go to this passage, but that all changed in that Bible class. When we studied Romans 7 and my teacher stood up and said, this passage is not about a believer. This passage is about an unbeliever. In fact, what this passage is about is Paul's life before he was a Christian because if you look at the struggle here, this is not the struggle of a believer. That's what he said. He said a believer is not so, supposed to say the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh. 
Or, I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And so he said, clearly he's an unbeliever. And if you struggle like this, you might be an unbeliever too. Well, that, that wrecked me because I couldn't imagine the Christian life without this struggle. I didn't know if I'd ever be over this struggle. And so I spent weeks researching, trying to understand this passage and, and eventually got to the point where I realized that this idea of Paul being an unbeliever in Romans 7 was a very new and very modern idea adopted by most of the modern scholars and commentaries. And really, if you look back on the reform tradition and really throughout history, and funny enough, with the pastors that are preaching that text, they all believe that Paul was a believer there. And that this is a wonderful passage to run to when you're struggling as a Christian. Now, I say all that because I believe many people misunderstand this passage with Jacob in a similar way that I misunderstood Romans 7. I think a lot of people read this passage and look at this and say, look at Jacob. He's praying here only because it's the last thing he could do. It's a last resort. He's, he's nearly worshiping his brother. He's so afraid, and why in the world is he afraid? God's been with him this whole time. God has done tremendous things. God even gives him a vision of angels, so clearly Jacob is not a believer because a believer should not struggle like this. I completely disagree with this picture of the text. And I want to show you that today. I believe this text is a wonderful picture of a believer fighting the good fight of faith. That's what we see here in Jacob's life. This is Jacob fighting for repentance, fighting for obedience and faithfulness and godliness, even when he doesn't feel like it, even when he's afraid I think this whole passage is just Jacob's desperation, really like the, the desperate father in Mark 9 when he prays, Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. And that's why it's a wonderful blessing for us to study this. And I hope as we study this, we will learn from Jacob's example and we too would be the ones to cling to God's promises and run to him in prayer so that we too would find great faith and be faithful in repentance. So as we walk through this text and we see Jacob's fight for repentance here, I want to break this into kind of three scenes, three parts. So first, we have Jacob's confident um, peace offering to, to his brother. That's in verses one through five. Second, it's Jacob's fearful prayer. And that really is the meat of the passage. And really, it's going to relate to even what Chad talks about next week. And then third, we'll see Jacob's humbling plan his plan that humbles him every step of the way to go and meet his brother. So first, let's look at Jacob's confident peace offering. Verse one, Jacob went on his way. On his way from where? If you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we just realized that Jacob just spent 20 years away from home, away from the promised land, working for his uncle Laban in Haran. And remember, he went to Haran to find a wife, and he did. He found Rachel very quickly, but it turned into a mess after that, didn't it? Because Laban deceived him to work 20 years, not just for Rachel, but also for Leah and for a bunch of spotted and speckled animals, that seems to be. So after this 20 years, it got so bad that Jacob and his family had to kind of sneak away like, like criminals. They snuck off in the middle of the night. We talked about that last week in Genesis 31. And they got caught, Laban caught up to them, and he was really angry, and essentially they made a peace offering where it was, you go your way, leave me alone, and I'll go my way. That's how it ended. 
I know you think your in-laws are bad. This is probably as bad as, bad as it can get. And so Jacob has essentially burned the bridge to Laban and to Haran. There's no way he's going back. But don't forget, it's not like it's just smooth sailing ahead. Don't forget why, uh, why Jacob had to leave the promised land in the first place. It wasn't just to find a wife. He had to run for his life because his murderous bro brother vowed to kill Jacob the next time he sees it. So Jacob is surrounded by trouble, Laban behind and then Esau ahead of him. It's, it's like that old saying, out of the frying pan and into the fryer. That's where Jacob is right now. No doubt he's scared, discouraged. His faith in the covenant promises are just hanging on by a thread. And I want you to see, first of all, what the Lord does in a moment like that. God seeks out Jacob. He goes and encourages Jacob right from the beginning of this chapter. Look what he says, verse one. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Now you might remember the last time Jacob saw angels when he was leaving the promised land. In Genesis 28, Jacob was given a vision of this ladder, this stairway that came down from heaven, and angels were ascending and descending on the ladder, and the Lord was right there with him right next to him, encouraging Jacob, saying, I will be with you, Jacob, even as you leave. And I will bless you, even when you're away from home. And Jacob, I promise, I will bring you back. What a glorious sight this must have been. As Jacob heads home, he sees the angels again. He's reminded of those promises 20 years earlier, and he knows God has been faithful. He's kept his word. And so Jacob responds like this. Look at verse 2. And when Jacob saw them, that's the angels, he said, this is God's camp. Very similar to what he said back in Bethel. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means double camp or, or two camps. Now often this word for camp is used, especially in military contexts. So Jacob could be looking here at God's army. An army of angels, the, the hosts of the Lord. And I actually think that's probably what's happening. What an encouragement that would be as he heads towards Esau. Now, scholars also debate, though, why does he call it two camps? What's the meaning behind that name? Well, is he referring to two camps of angels? One angel going kind of, or a, a camp, a host of angels going before him, and a host of angels going behind him to kind of surround him and protect him? Psalm 34 talks like that. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Or maybe Jacob's just talking about his camp and the camp of the angels. In that case, it's, a, it's evidence that God is still dwelling with his people. Now, which way do we see it? Honestly, I don't know. But either way, the point is still abundantly clear. Jacob is finally seeing, well, God is not just guarding the promised land. God is guarding me. He's been with me. He's been for me this whole time, and I didn't even see it. I hope you can see the kindness of the Lord and the faithfulness of God to come to Jacob in this moment before he faces off with his brother Esau, before the fears kind of come to their fulfillment, God comes to his son and cares for him and encourages him. And I think he's encouraging us here too with the same encouragement, telling Jacob, live by faith, Jacob, not by sight. 
Live by faith. Look beyond the world you see. Look beyond the threats of man. Remember that I am with you and I am for you even when you don't see me. Even when you can't see the work of my hands, even when there's no evidence of grace around you, I am still with you. And if I am with you, who can be against you? That's the hope that Jacob has. That's the confidence that he has headed into this meeting. And so with this great confidence in the Lord, he actually pursues Esau. He pursues repentance and reconciliation. That's what this peace offering is all about. So look at verse three again. Verse three says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, I'm guessing those travel details probably make almost no sense to us. We're terrible at geography in general, and especially in the Middle East. So what what are these places, Edom and Seir? Now, what you don't realize there is Moses, and really Jacob, is actually giving us details of how he's going out of his way to meet his brother. Jacob is actually coming from the north. He's coming into the promised land from the north. And the amazing thing is his dad, Isaac, their camp and Bethel is like 50, 60 miles away. All he had to do was just kind of cross the border, go a little bit southwest, and there would be Isaac. He could have so easily slipped in to the promised land silently, even maybe even under the, the cloud of darkness, like he slipped away from Laban. Could have went to his father without his brother even realizing, gathered his troops, been ready to meet his brother, but he doesn't do it. Jacob stops at the border, doesn't get into the promised land. He sets up camp right on the edge of the border, and then he sends his servants, not southwest towards his father, but southeast, 175 miles away, way out of their way, to go to Esau, to go to his brother. He's not lost. He he doesn't have a death wish. Jacob is pursuing repentance. He is pursuing reconciliation before he walks with God in the promised land. Can't help but be reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about corporate worship and us, in Matthew 5 he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's a little bit different context with corporate worship, but the principle is the same. Jacob is trying to get right with his brother before he goes into the promised land to worship God. That's his goal. And if you doubt that's what his motive is, keep reading. Verse four, instructing them, that's his his messengers, thus you shall say to what? My Lord. Esau, thus says your servant, Jacob. We've never heard words come out of Jacob's mouth like that. That doesn't sound like Jacob at all. Jacob hasn't been a servant to anyone unless he's forced, like with Laban. He hasn't been a servant at all. And last of of which he would serve is Esau. He would never call his brother Lord, not in the way he was and the way he left. This is so strange to hear these words come out of Jacob's mouth and keep reading. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. Now let's stop there for a second. Why is Jacob just listing all of his possessions here? Is this kind of the younger brother showing off 
to the big brother flexing, right? We see this, sadly, this is probably what social media is mostly about, right? Look at my huge house. There's my giant SUV pulling my giant boat in the driveway. Here's my, my beach house and my cabin, and here's all the stuff. Brother, I have more money than I know what to do with. Is that what he's doing? I don't think he's doing that at all. I think Jacob's doing two things. One, he's showing Esau, look, I'm not a threat to you. God has provided more, enough, more than enough for me. I didn't come here to take like the last time you saw me. He's telling Esau, secondly, I came here to give. I came here to give back what I stole from you. This is Jacob's family inheritance. This is the right of the firstborn. This is the physical blessing that Jacob stole from his brother. So the peace offering here is not just trying to bribe him, it's actually more like reparations. It's Jacob's restitution for his sin. And if you are still doubtful, look at verse five again, the end of verse five. I have sent to my Lord, there it is again, in order that I may what? Find favor in your sight. That's the goal. I like the old King James even better, that I might find grace, forgiveness in your sight. That's what Jacob's all all about here. This is Jacob's repentance. He's recognizing his sin. He's turning away from his sin. Do you see the transformation in Jacob's life? He used to be the one to always put himself first, wasn't he? Now he puts himself last. He even puts himself under his brother when it was prophesied that he would be the one ruling over. He used to be the one to selfishly cheat and deceive and to grasp at everything that's not his, and now he's the one to freely and generously give. Oh, he has been changed. Like Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus in the New Testament in Luke 19? When he is forgiven and he realizes the debt that he has had settled with God, what does he do? He says, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I will give it back and then some. That's what Jacob's doing. This is a new creation. This is a new man. The old old man has gone and the new man has come. Brothers and sisters, is that true in your life as well? Is there evidence of this kind of submission and repentance in your life? Because as believers, as those that are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we should be marked by humble repentance. Humble repentance first and foremost to God and also to each other. We should be the ones to go out of our way to reconcile broken relationships as far as we are able. Oh, I know that's hard. Kids, I know that's hard. When you sin and you do something wrong, the first instinct is to run, isn't it? You need to know as an adult that doesn't change. We still wanna run, we still wanna hide. Adults, I know it's tempting to never, never even settle broken relationships because you think, I am not gonna touch that. I don't wanna open that can of worms. I know how bad it was. There's no way I'm going back there. It's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. But this is what God has called us to. If we have been reconciled to God in Christ, we should be reconciling, repenting people. That's the response. 
So if that's not the way you are living your life, honoring the Lord in your life, then I, I call you, brothers and sisters, to repent. To repent first to God. To remember that Jesus lived and died for those sins that you need to repent of. He lived perfectly where you failed. And he died on the cross and paid for that sin in full. And he rose from the dead to give you and I victory over that sin. To free us from the power of sin. So that when we repent, when we ask for forgiveness, when we turn from that sin, we can be forgiven. Reconciled to our holy and perfect God. And if we've been reconciled to our God through the blood of Christ, then we should also be reconciled to those we have wronged as well. So I encourage you, if there's someone that has something against you, if you've sinned against somebody, go out there and fix it. Don't wait. If it's wrong, Providence kids, you remember this, right? The call, if it's wrong, go make it right. That's what we're called to as believers. And that's what Jacob's doing here. Well, what happens when we pursue repentance? When we actually pursue reconciliation and then the person that we sinned against, the person we're trying to repent to, doesn't really want it. They don't want to pursue it with us. Well, that's what it looks like is going to happen here with Jacob and Esau, at least initially. And let's see what Jacob does. Does he run or does he still pursue it even though it doesn't look good? Well, we've seen his confident peace offering. Let's look at his fearful prayer. And first, verse six, we'll see what he's afraid of. Verse six. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. That didn't sound like a welcoming party. They're not coming as a parade to welcome him home, welcome him back into the promised land. No, this sounds like an army. It actually sounds like an army because in the Bible, a lot of the times, this is about the number of men we see as a little militia all throughout First and Second Samuel especially, and even back in Abraham's day. This is the number. So this looks like an, an army's approaching. And I think Jacob's right to assume this because the last words from his brother were what? I am going to kill you. And so he assumes that that's what this army is coming to do. And so look at how he responds. It's incredible. Verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now you look at that and say, that's a really strange response. He divides up his camp so some can escape. There are some that look at that and say, well, there he is. There's good old Jacob. Trying to divide up his possessions. Trying to save all the stuff he has. And why in the world, again, is he afraid? The Lord's with him. The Lord just showed him his angels. Why is he so afraid? Jacob is not walking with the Lord here, but I completely disagree. This is a response of trust in the Lord, even when he's afraid. He's not trying to protect his stuff. He just talked about giving it all away. He's going to do it again in the very next verses. Jacob divides up his camp to protect the people, the family. He's being a good father, a good patriarch, trying to be careful and, and make a wise decision. Plus, look, if this was the old Jacob, I really honestly believe he would have took off. He would have run, right? Maybe even to leave his family behind. Actually, more and more to think about it, he probably would have taken Rachel with him, right? Left Leah behind, finally. I can be free of the, the wife that I never wanted. Doesn't that sound like what Jacob would have done? But he doesn't. 
He doesn't. He doesn't run. He doesn't avoid conflict. He, he stands his ground. He, he plans for kind of the worst case scenario, makes a wise decision by splitting them up, but he stays to trust the Lord. He's terrified, but still in the face of fear, he tries to obey, tries to make peace with his brother, even if his peace doesn't come. Even if his brother comes and destroys him, he is giving it his best shot. Like Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's what he's doing here. And Jacob, what does he do with his fear? Well, he fights his fear with faith. And he grows in his faith. He strengthens his faith through prayer. This beautiful prayer from Jacob. You know what? This is the interesting part about this prayer. This is the longest prayer in Genesis. 9 to 12, longest prayer. It's actually the first time we've ever heard Jacob pray. He's vowed back in chapter 28, but he's never prayed before that we see. He probably has by the look of this prayer, but we just don't have any record of it. But this beautiful prayer couldn't come at a better moment. And God will even answer this prayer next week. But right now we need to see this is about Jacob's trust in the Lord. It's about Jacob saying, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Now, I know a lot of us probably learned how to pray with the whole acts acrostic. You guys remember that? Right? You get adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's a great way to pray. And I believe Jacob kind of follows that here. This is one place where we can see him actually carry that out. Look at the adoration, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, You see, by calling out to the God of his father, Jacob is praising God's covenant faithfulness here. He's saying, you are the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of my father. You've always been faithful. And as Jacob is remembering that and praising God for it, he's also remembering remembering God's track record. You have been faithful for generation after generation, which means you will still be faithful to me. And then he comes in while praising God and reminds God of his promises. Look at verse nine, right in the middle of verse nine. O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Why is he praying this? It's not like God forgot his promises and so Jacob's like, hey, this doesn't look good. God, remember, you need to do this. No, Jacob is praying God's promises back to him. Showing the Lord, I am trusting in this. I've obeyed this. I've returned to my country. I'm trying to return to my kindred, and this doesn't look good, Lord. It looks terrible, but you know what? At the end of the day, I will trust you. Because again, you are the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. This is a wonderful way to pray, by the way. Saints, if you're struggling, if you are battling fear, And you just run out of words to say that. That happens so much in prayer, doesn't it? I don't even know what to pray. Pray the scriptures. Turn to God's word. Pray the promises of God back to him to remind yourself and to praise God for his faithfulness when he keeps those promises. Let scripture be our prayer language so we can praise God as we rest in him. That's what Jacob's doing here. And that leads right into his confession, verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. 
Again, this doesn't sound like Jacob, does it? I imagine Jacob's confession of sin before this would have been a lot like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Do you remember that situation where the Pharisee's there praying out in the open for everybody to see and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you. I am not like other men. I would imagine Jacob saying, I thank you I'm not like Esau. I thank you I'm not like Laban, even though he was so much like Laban, wasn't he? And he learned that the hard way. That's not the prayer he prays here. The prayer he prays is not the prayer of the Pharisee, but the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jacob is humbling himself, acknowledging his sin and unworthiness. Lord, I don't deserve any of this grace because I have sinned against you and you alone. And that leads him right into his thanksgiving. Look at the rest of verse 10. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Now that two camps comes up again and again in this passage, and I actually believe that this reference is a little bit of a wordplay here. I don't think that Jacob is just saying, look, I came uh, to this place, I went and escaped with nothing. I had my staff, but I didn't have a wife, I didn't have a family, but look at me now. Lord, you've blessed me with the family and all these kids. Uh, this is a wonderful thing. He's thanking God for that, yes. But don't forget where this passage started. It was Jacob's camp with God's camp. I think Jacob's saying, yes, when I left, I left alone. And now not only do I have my family, the wonderful blessing you've given me, Lord, I have you. I am dwelling with my God. It's a beautiful picture of that wonderful covenant promise we keep seeing throughout the Pentateuch. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what Jacob's rejoicing in. And finally, after his adoration, his confession, his thanksgiving, he finally gets to what seems to really matter, that supplication, that need. And he prays in verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. And listen, not just me, the mothers with the children. You see, Jacob's still afraid. His fear didn't magically go away. God didn't pull that from him. He's still struggling, but he's not running. He's not taking off. He's trusting the Lord in his fear recognizing that, yeah, my brother's hand is strong. I fear his hand, but I fear God more. The strength of his hand is so much stronger than my brother, so I will trust the Lord and trust his promises. He goes right back to the same promise in verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good. What good? More stuff? More kids? <laughs> Some ways, but Jacob believes even in a greater good, a greater blessing, really, I believe, a greater city that doesn't have foundations, a greater people of God like his father and like his grandfather. Listen to what he says. I will surely do you good and, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Well, brothers and sisters, this is that great covenant blessing that is fulfilled first and foremost in Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham and us as, as we're in Christ by faith, we too are offspring of Abraham, Galatians chapter three. And it's in Jesus 
where we see the spiritual offspring that cannot be numbered. When we look to Revelation 7 and see that giant multitude that can't be numbered, worshiping before the thrones of God from every nation and tribe and people group, that is this offspring that is as big as the sand of the seashore. Jacob is trusting in the promises of God, looking all the way to Christ through prayer here. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that this is how we pray. When we're overwhelmed with fear and doubts, let's not be the people that run and hide when conflict comes. Let's not be the people that depend on the strength of our own hands or the intellect, the abilities and the wisdom or ingenuity we have to outthink our problem or outtrick our enemies. Let's be those that run to God in prayer, humble ourselves before God, praising God, thanking God for all of his faithfulness, confessing our sins and our unworthiness to God and pleading on those promises, trusting that God will fulfill them because he already has fulfilled them in Christ. And he will finish fulfilling them when Jesus comes back to deliver us from Satan's sin and death forever. Well, we've seen Jacob's confident peace offering and his fearful prayer. How does he respond then? He doesn't just stop. Esau doesn't just show up. What does he actually do? What steps of faith does he actually take? Well, we see that in verse 13 as he makes this humbling plan, really humbling for himself. Verse 13. So he stayed there that night. Again, he's not running. He's trusting. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. Now in case you weren't counting, or you just don't wanna do math, there are about 550 animals here. That's a zoo. That's a large zoo in many respects. It's hard to even see the value of this. Some of the commentaries, it's amazing. They actually kind of update the value and they estimate maybe this is valued at 275 to $300,000 worth of animals. Talk about a gift. This is basically Jacob's entire inheritance everything he's worked for. 20 years with Laban, everything that God has blessed him, he just gives it away. Gives it away like it's nothing. Why? Well, one, because yes, he's trying to pay Esau back, but I think, especially here, we see Jacob finally realize that God is his inheritance. This reminds me so much of his grandfather Abraham when he entered the promised land with Lot. Do you remember that in Genesis 13? They come into the promised land, the land's all there for the taking, and Abraham turns to his nephew Lot and says, you know what, you take first pick. Pick whatever you want. You can have the best of the land. You can have anything you want. I don't need the land. You know why? I have God. God is my inheritance. You see Jacob here? Take the inheritance. Take everything that I got with Laban. I don't need it because I have the Lord. Jacob is a changed man. The heel grabber, the grasper, 
has become the generous protector. The proud deceiver has become the humble servant. We see that even most in these last words he has before he meets Esau. Look at verse 17. He instructed the first. When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to, and listen, your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. There it is again, that humbling language, putting himself kind of below Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Verse 19, he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. And here's where we get an insight to what's really behind all this. Middle of verse 20. For he thought, I may appease Esau. The word there is very interesting. It's actually the word where we get propitiation, the sacrificial language where we would satisfy God's wrath. Esau saying, perhaps this gift will propitiate his wrath. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterwards I shall see his face. That's the picture of reconciliation. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present, the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, some of you might have noticed in the little footnotes in the ESV, if you have an ESV, a lot of this section, these few verses, have so much descriptive language about face. I want to come face to face with him. And even those words, accept me, very literally it translated that he might lift my face. You see, this is Jacob's goal. He's repenting. He's trying to reconcile with his brother. He's coming to Esau with his head down, confessing his sins, and his hope is that his brother would forgive him and lift his head, that he would see God face to face. Isn't this what God has done for us? God's wrath was upon us, and because of Christ who paid for our sins, when we humble ourselves before God, God lifts our face to see him in his glory face to face. So you see, this is, this is not a bribe. It's not Jacob going back to his old ways. No, this is Jacob humbling himself in Christ-like submission here. This is Jacob faithfully walking in costly repentance, even when he has no clue how God will keep his promises. And it looks like God won't. He still trusts the Lord. He still steps forward to confront, to repent before his brothers. I love that we see Jacob's faith, his character really shining through, not just in the prayer. You see it very clearly in the prayer, but also in these last actions, don't we? Our response to prayer matters, by the way. I'm sure some of you have heard of George Mueller. George Mueller was a wonderful pastor in the 1800s in England, a very godly man. He was a prayer warrior. He's probably most known for raising support for so many orphanages through his prayers and, and through his work there. Well, one time, one of the members of his congregation asked him, Mr. Mueller, what is the most important part about prayer? That's what you should ask, by the way, when you know an older saint. Teach me how to pray. What's the most important part of prayer? And Mueller thought for a moment, and then he responded like this. 
He says the most important part of prayer is the 15 minutes after you've said amen. And what he means by that? It's our response to prayer, our steps of faith afterwards will really show whether or not we believe the promises that we were just praying. Whether or not we're trusting in the God that we run to in prayer. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, yes, run to God in repentance, in prayer, but then follow that up with faithful obedience. Whether that means stepping into a a scary place for repentance or it just means walking accord with God's law and fighting for repentance, fighting for reconciliation. We need to be the people that do those things, not because they earn our way into heaven, but because we are the people who've been reconciled to our God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful picture of repentance. I pray for these saints here, Lord, for those that are struggling, for those that are battling to be faithful, for those that are doubting your promises and thinking that you are not with them, Lord, that this passage would be evidence, like Jacob seeing those angels. This would be the picture of your faithfulness that we need, Lord, to trust you, to repent before you, and to walk in faithfulness. Father, give us the grace we need to trust you and pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us to give us the strength to take those steps of faithfulness that would honor you and bring glory to your name. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.